When you don't come from those things, whether it's wealth or schools or certain access points, and we talk about this in Silicon Valley, right? I mean, you know this, it's all about access. And so when you don't have that access, the challenges are even deeper. And we know from a macro level that Silicon Valley generally does not give as much money to women-owned tech companies. And more importantly, women of color in tech get less than 1% of venture dollars. At the end of the day, your net worth is essentially sort of, it's a visual picture of where you are in terms of your financial health and do you have money left over to pass on? This is where the intergenerational part means, right? Do you have wealth at the end of your life to leave to your children, your family, your community? Welcome to Fundamental Fairness, a podcast about financial inclusion from the lens of entrepreneurs, policymakers, and investors. Brought to you by Camino Financial with your host, Sean Salas. Hi, welcome to another episode of Fundamental Fairness. Today, we're going to talk about building generational wealth through fintech. Well, building generational wealth, especially as a Latino or Latina, is a revolutionary act. According to a survey of consumer finance by the Federal Reserve, one reason, I quote, wealth holding is relatively high among white families is they are considerably more likely to have received an inheritance or gift, and nearly 30% of white families report having received an inheritance or gift, compared to about 10% of Black families and 7% of Latino families, end quote. The way we are addressing this racial equity gap in the U.S. is focusing on building generational wealth, making sure that our communities have access to capital, resources, and financial literacy tools that we can use today and we can pass on to our children. In this episode of Fundamental Fairness, we welcome Ramona Ortega, who will discuss her journey as a notable Latina in fintech and how she founded a company that helps underserved millennials create a roadmap towards building generational wealth. Now let's talk more about Ramona. She's the founder and CEO of My Money, My Future, which is a mission-driven fintech company that combines tailored content and simple-to-use tools to help people manage their money with confidence. My Money, My Future's personal financial management platform automates budgeting, guides individuals through all the financial decisions, and helps them choose the best financial products from a curated selection of partners. Previously, Ramona was an attorney in New York, where she worked on complex securities litigation and corporate matters at the SEC and U.S. Bankruptcy Court. Prior to her career in law, Ramona was a human rights advocate and a founding member of the U.S. Human Rights Network. And quite frankly, Ramona is just a great person, a great leader, and a very bright mind. So Ramona, thank you for joining today's podcast. Yes, thank you, Sean. It's so good to be here. We're bringing our private conversations to this podcast. We talk about fintech a lot. Super excited to be here and and obviously a big fan and supporter of the work you do at Camino. Well, great. Well, let's jump into it. You're an innovator, a tech entrepreneur, and corporate attorney, which is three great things, especially the corporate attorney part. That's always awesome to bring to the table. Your breadth of experience covers across industries in the public-private sector, and it gives you a unique advantage to solve complex problems in finance, tech, and law. Ultimately, you focused your efforts on closing the racial wealth gap and decided to launch a fintech company to do something about it. So, Before we dive in, can you tell us about your company? Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your journey? Absolutely. 
I think that my journey and what I represent and similar to yours as well is what informs the work that I do. I'm actually fourth generation Mexican-American, come out of Chicana, Latinx, you know, using all the new words. And I grew up in California and my parents were farm workers, then became sort of blue collar workers. And so I grew up in a community where people were working really hard, but we weren't seeing the fruits of our labor. And interestingly enough, this didn't have anything to do with immigration per se. So my parents were U.S. citizens. My grandparents were U.S. citizens. And I think the thing that we sometimes miss in the conversation around immigration and the racial wealth gap or intergenerational wealth, that being here, there's many families, especially Mexican families who came over early or working in the fields and still didn't have the opportunity to build wealth for a lot of the reasons that we're going to talk about now. And so I think that authenticity that I bring to trying to solve this problem is really critical. And especially now, I talk a lot about authenticity is the new cultural relevancy. And when I was growing up, I left home at 16. I actually left school early. I took a test to get out. Ended up working my way to UCLA. I was the first to go to college and my family was going to be a reporter. I actually worked for 60 Minutes. That's what actually brought me to New York wow. City. Yeah. Yeah. Very early career in journalism. I wanted to be the first Latina Connie Chung back in the day, (laughs) you know, and then did great work. Even in LA, I was with the LA Weekly and covered a lot of news and policy. So early on, I kind of realized I had a good knack at breaking down complex things. So complex policies and translating them into the kind of layman's terms. And that actually worked very well as I got into law. And even now, a lot of the work that I do and the work that we're trying to do with the company is breaking personal finance, wealth building down so that anybody can access it. Because so much of personal wealth and wealth building is really about learning the language of finance. So fast forward, I was doing international human rights work and I was very deep in it. And I think that's the other thing that's really important in this conversation is that I know nowadays financial inclusion, financial wellness is kind of a new word that everybody wants to tag on to fintech, right? Because I think coming out of COVID, we've seen a disproportionate impact on communities of color. Post George Floyd, we realize how important equity is in terms of systemic racism and and the things that we need to do and how much a part of that personal finance and economics have to do with that. So there's this sort of renewed focus in some ways on the work that we've been doing, but the work that I personally have been doing for the last 20 years. I was one of the delegates to the World Conference Against Racism in South Africa in early 2000 and led the first shadow report to the U.S. government report in Geneva back in, you know, like 98, 99. So there's a lot of of this work. It's not new work. And so what we're doing with fintech and what we're doing with sort of innovation is bringing a new lens, bringing new tools to this particular problem and trying to solve it. And so I think the last piece of that for me was really trying to figure out the capital markets piece of this, right? How do we use this money or how do we use money in particular to solve for very big social problems? And so I was able to go to law school being very focused. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what I wanted to get out of law school. I was a single mom. I think my son was seven years old when I went to law school. And I was very focused on making sure to get the right experiences. And I was able to 
work with the chief judge in bankruptcy in the Southern District, who's happened to be Latino and he you know, is retired now, but doing great work and getting that experience inside of Chapter 11 bankruptcies where working on Enron and some of these GM and some of these Chrysler and these really big fundamental bankruptcies in the economy was, I think, just amazing opportunity to get inside out look. And then later going to the asset management unit of the SEC at the time of the rollout of Dodd-Frank, learning how to regulate private equity and hedge funds, all of which are extremely relevant even to this day, right? And then later on doing securities litigation and working on very big cases like Madoff. We were part of the team that successfully sued JP Morgan Chase on behalf of investors in Madoff. And then MF Global, which was really looking at litigating on, on behalf of shareholders when John Corzine was leading that and took down one of the oldest commodity houses. So that was like a full circle, right? And Wow. That's I, quite a background. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> then you made this leap from yeah. social advocate to lawyer, but with a social inclination, right? And then to being an entrepreneur, what were you thinking, Ramona? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So there's two things I was thinking, or maybe actually three. One is I've got this great community of lawyers, Latino lawyers in New York, and there's a group, actual group called Cafecito. And I would go to Cafecito and I would be talking to my counterparts in different firms and I'd be asking these Latinos, who most of them were first in their families, by the way. So now what I kind of defined as our target audience are really what we call first mover wealth builders, because it's sometimes it's generational. Oh, I like that. So these are people that are first in their families or first in their communities to do something whether it's a job or college or buying a house or opening a business, these first movers. And I'm asking them, what are they doing with their money? How are they investing? What are they thinking about? And almost across the board, I got this, oh, I don't know. I don't do that. My husband deals with that. My dad deals with that. Or I just put money in there. I don't know. (laughs) And I'm like, if we don't know, and we're kind of the 1% of Latinas who have professionally made it in corporate law, then everyone else definitely does it. And I know I did. And I didn't grow up talking about money. I mean, we were poor to working class. The only money conversations we had were that, you know, we didn't have any. <laughs> Those were complicated conversations to the extent that's like, yeah, we don't have money for that. So next, <laughs> there was never any conversation about retirement. There was no conversation about investing or just even credit building. And I don't blame my parents. They didn't know, right? You can't teach what you don't know. And so what happened was I started looking around at fintech. It's that sort of V1 fintech, right? LearnVest had just launched. I think Acorns had sort of just started building. And I was going, wow, there's all this really great innovation, but it's not speaking to me, right? None of these companies are targeting me. And me being sort of representative of the large Latinx or Latino population that is a first mover and not understanding our relationship and our nuanced be financial behaviors. And so I thought, well, if not me, whom? And if I don't do this, someone else is going to do it, right? And now, of course, we have several types of companies that I think are are going after the same audience in the same kind of way. But if anything, imitation is that sincerest form of flattery, right? Which is, we were first. And then sometimes being first means you're actually wrong and or you're wrong at the the wrong place at the wrong time. (laughs) But that's okay, which is why we pivoted it was a real immediate, like, there's such a gap in the market for people or companies that are targeting our community. And we are the, the largest growth market in the US. 
And the fact that someone else was going to do it if I didn't do it. So I better do it now. And I think that the third piece is that I didn't grow up with anything. So I have very little to lose. Like there's only up. And I still think that's true for me now. Like we're still working class. My family's still working class. Like we didn't come from money. We're not, you know, coming into this game with lots of credentials. Didn't go to an Ivy League school. I mean, I went to UCLA and I went to Fordham One. I went, had great education and great experience. Number one public institution. Although <laughs> I, I went to Berkeley, I won't hold that against you. But <laughs> yes, exactly. Right, and, and UCLA and Berkeley, especially during the time that I went, they had affirmative action. They had these opportunities. And to be honest, like this is why those things are important. Whether or not I actually got into affirmative action or not, is, doesn't matter. I made it, right? I passed the bar on the first time, which is like my probably my biggest win in yeah. life. <laughs> <laughs> those are really important markers of being able to really try to solve a problem from within. So I, I kind of joke, and I don't totally mean this, but we have a lot of rich people trying to solve poor people problems. And I do I like think that. I like I, that. Yeah. And I do think that they don't understand the nuances. And I'm not saying that there's not solutions that people can come up with that are going to be great. But I do think part of the problem with the lack of diversity in fintech is that we just are not allowing people who are coming from these communities to solve these problems. There is so much you said. There is so much to unpack. And I love the passion. So we talked about your transition from being a lawyer to being an entrepreneur. And you found your way to My Money, My Future, the good old-fashioned way, which is you got direct feedback from the market. You saw the opportunity. And like an entrepreneur, you like, I need to build something around this opportunity. So now let's talk about My Money, My Future. Where are you guys today? How did you start it? You mentioned this, you know, a pivot, which I think is important for our audience because it's important they understand how businesses evolve too based on the opportunity in front of you. So if you can tell yeah. a little bit about My Money, My Future and where you're going, that would be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we were early in, in really talking about the financial advice gap. So if you look at financial services, V1 and 2, they are single verticals, right? It's like, banking, lending, credit. So it's kind of getting access to those particular products. And what we had always started with was, look, these products are being built in the market. Like now, for example, you've got robo-advisors, digital banking, online lending, online credit. So all the products are now accessible. What we're still saying is that the advice piece, people don't have a trusted person or Sherpa, Navigator, whatever you want to call it, to turn to, to say, well, what should I do? We get inbox emails all the time saying, okay, I've opened up a Robinhood account. What do I do? So this financial education has been missing. If you don't learn about it at home, you don't learn about it at school, then you just don't learn about it. And really one of the key pieces is how do I use these things, these different products? How does insurance fit in? How do I use lending? How do I use credit? What kind of credit card? What kind of loan? What's an APR? These are the kinds of things that people need to know in real time. Rich people have a financial advisor, right? And so the idea is really to be building the next gen financial advisor in your pocket. We're going to use a, you know APIs 
to bring in, to aggregate and bring in different types of accounts. We're going to be using data and, and AI from a machine learning perspective to be the best financial advice engine out there. And not just for Latinos. I mean, I think that this is a problem that we're solving that actually is broader while we always will keep our focus on this first mover wealth builder. It is a lot of people that we're able to support and to bring into our platform so that we can then provide the best financial advice. And the roadmap then eventually goes to building your own products, of course, right? But at this point, there's so many products out there that with API integrations and everything else, we can bring a lot of that stuff inside of the platform so that people feel like they actually have a trusted source of information to make that financial decision. Got it. And in order to aid people in making that financial decision, how are you leveraging data science and data in general to curate that matchmaking process? And are there any visual tools you're using to or visual representation of that information so that the user of that product can navigate through that with, with minimum to no friction? Yeah. So it's interesting. So it'll almost be like, a bot, but a high-level bot, right? Talking to you, walking you through that. And that's where the AI comes in. We're going to be using not only a first-level data, right? So that we're getting from our user, but using kind of a think AI Watson, we're able to also bring in the best financial advice. So it's personalized based on a number of factors. And that's what we're going to patent our sort of decision tool, right? Because that's the, that I think that's where it becomes really, you know, exciting is that, how do you give someone financial advice that's not just general advice, but okay, I can see into your different accounts because you've connected them and then give them that kind of personalized financial guidance based on the information that we have and the information we're collecting. Yeah, I love that. And the reason why I wanted to double click there is I think that any financial product should be paired in one way, shape or form directly or indirectly with a content product. And that content is really your roadmap on how to best utilize this financial product and maximize the return on that product. I think, for instance, at Camino, we have a saying, capital in isolation is not the solution. If all you're doing is offering the money with no roadmap, so to speak, on how to maximize the return on that money, then you're limiting the potential of the end user or the borrower in this case. That's exactly right. And I feel like, especially these first mover wealth builders need these roadmaps more than anyone. Now that said, you don't necessarily have to tell them exactly what you need to do. You just need to give them the roadmap so they better understand what different avenues they can take. And what we found is that when given that roadmap with multiple different ways to get to the same goal, we find that we're able to exponentially create that value. And so I love what you're doing. And I think This is not something new in the context of, yeah, advisory, financial wealth advisory. I think what's interesting in the context of fintech, which is a part of the theme of today's podcast, is how do we leverage in this context AI and integrated BI tools or business intelligence tools to do it at scale in markets that haven't been touched before? Is that a fair representation? That's absolutely right. So when I say the financial advisor in your pocket, so for example, the problem is that traditional financial advisors are going to sit down with you and give you that time. They're going to do the, what I call the 360. They're going to look at how 
taxes, your budget, your investments. They're going to look at all of these things and how they fit together. What the problem is, though, is their business model is based on assets under management. They need to know that you have enough like assets to manage to charge you one to three percent because that's how they make their money. And then there are are some fee advisors, of course, but most of them are looking for people with a certain amount of assets under management. So when you're talking about the 99% or those that are facing traditional wealth gaps like communities of color, they're going to have less wealth. But in fact, they're the ones that need that kind of financial advice the most. And so that's really where the AI, the data, the machine learning, and just technology generally are going to allow us to scale and to really provide quality financial advice to the masses at a much lower price point. Great. That makes perfect sense. Let's chat about the fact that you're named in 2020 one of the most notable women in financial advice by Queen's Business. And so based on that, and congrats, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> what are the challenges you faced throughout the course of your career as a Latina in tech? pushing towards closing the racial equity gap? (laughs) So many. (laughs) So many. I would say it starts with when you have people of color, especially those from a different class, because I think that we are now at a point in these discussions where we can give it another layer of complexity. We've always talked about intersectional politics, right? I mean, I think most people know about that. But I think it's really important because Class differences also, even within race, right? I mean, Latinos, there are plenty of of very rich Latinos. Now, not as an aggregate, right? I mean, in terms of the average or the mean, no. But we have lots of people in finance, for example. I mean, Latam has a ton of money, right? And we've seen that. We've seen the growth of Latam in Silicon Valley, for example. And so I think that where I have seen the most... I would say challenges is really trying to unpack some of those nuances. Even when I was working in finance and Wall Street, you would see, for example, you'd see some women, you'd even see some Latinos, but oftentimes, or more often than not, those are folks that were coming from either families or communities that had money or resources, which gave them a certain way to navigate in that world. And it gives you certain access. And I think that's sort of what has been always a challenge for me is when you don't come from those things, whether it's wealth or schools or certain access points. And we talk about this in Silicon Valley, right? I mean, you know this. It's all about access. And so when you don't have that access, the challenges are even deeper. And we know from a macro level that Silicon Valley generally does not give as much money to women-owned tech companies, and more importantly, women of color in tech get less than 1% of venture dollars. And then if you add on another layer of, by the way, I didn't come from money. So I'm not married to money. I don't have money in my family. I don't have access to it. Then it's a real challenge because building any business, but particularly a tech business requires a lot of upfront money, right? That's the whole game. And so you don't go to the SBA to get a loan. You don't sell a a particular widget or a product to gain revenue. The whole model is built on getting access to a lot of money up front and paying those investors back at the back end. This episode of Fundamental Fairness with the founder of My Money, My Future, 
Ramona Ortega is brought to you by Camino Financial. I have one friend, mentor, Angel Morales, a fairly prominent executive um, in private equity and investor as well. And he has a saying, which I think summarizes at least some of the dynamics you're referring to right now, which is, it's not necessarily an access to capital issue. It's a connectivity to capital issue. Mm -hmm. And when you don't come from these networks, right, that facilitate that connectivity, you're structurally disadvantaged. And of course, unfortunately, those of us that come from traditionally disenfranchised communities that have suffered from, unfortunately, different waves of systemic racism are less likely to have those connections than others, period. (laughs) It's that simple. And the numbers show that. So I appreciate you talking about that. And so You know, there has been a silver lining coming out of 2020, and you alluded to this earlier, which is the notion of financial inclusion being in vogue. And it's clear you're not a bandwagoner here, so to speak, but (laughs) you're a veteran. That said, there has been increasing interest in investing in financial at the intersection of what I'd call financial inclusion and fintech. And so I'd like to now better understand in light of these new entrants and capital coming in, how is my money, my futures set itself apart from other fintech platforms and where is it going? So to kind of go back to the conversation about the pivot, which is when you are in a position where, you know, you don't have the capital necessary to scale, good entrepreneurs pivot and figure out what they can do. And I've always believed in that. I'm on the arc of of sort of justice. And as you go forward, you put your head down and you figure it out. And I think that's what we were doing during this time. Not only were we building like really deep brand expertise and understanding the customer, which I do think that that's invaluable because you can't buy that. So big companies can come in and say, oh, I'm going to serve this community. If they don't understand the dynamics, it's very hard to just go in and, and buy something essentially, right? You can buy customers to some extent, but after a different point, you're going to run out of that momentum. So being able to build brand recognition is very important. And as someone who is also the face of the company, that's really important to me. And it's something that we've been working on. And I think we've done a very good job at that and really understanding some of the problems and issues that our users are having. One of the things that we realized though, like I said, is that We need to be better at really making our tools simple enough to be able to do what we really want to do, which is how do we provide the best financial advice? Because there are plenty of blogs out there, let's say. I mean, there's tons of financial information. If somebody wants to know something, they actually could go find it. That's not the issue. What people are looking for is navigation. They want someone to help them make that decision. And so really when I started looking around at what we were trying to build and like just kind of thinking about how do I make this product better? Like we had a V1, it was okay. It wasn't great. I know that, by the way, you know, it's like you build us what you can, right? I mean, we we built with under a million dollars, we were able to keep this company afloat. So like, I'm super proud of that. I'm like, if anyone's got resilience, it's me, right? So what we were able to do though, from that experience is actually be like, okay, what can we do now, especially given the technology advancements with APIs and data and AI 
we can actually fulfill the original idea, which is giving people the financial advice. And I challenge people because there's people will say, oh, there's other people doing that. It's like, mm, not, not necessarily. What they're doing is connecting to your bank account, right? There are others that are connecting to your bank account and based on your transactions, they are saying, hey, there's another credit card or hey, you should get a loan based on your banking transactional data. That's not what we're doing. What we're doing is saying, hey, you can come to us with any kind of question or any kind of financial decision. And we're going to look at the whole picture based on the data that we have of you and data externally and give you the best financial advice based on that. And I think that's different because it's really about creating a brand that it's a life cycle, right? Because you don't want people just to come one time. I want them to come all the time. And to do that, what you do is actually have to connect to their their life and all of the things that are happening. If you look at my bank account, I don't think it gives you a very accurate picture of who I am, for example. Yep. I'm going to get some aggregate data, but I'm sure the same thing with you, Sean. You talk to a, a small business, you may look at their bank account and say, huh, I don't know if they're great for a loan, but you talk to them, you get some additional information and data points, and then you say, you know what? We actually can underwrite them because I do think that they have a really interesting business proposition, right? And I think that's for us, we are distinguishing ourselves on the AI financial advice that's in real time. We are distinguishing ourselves on being a brand that's committed to the journey, the life cycle of a person. And that's going to be a differentiator, right? And I think that also the partnership distributions that we are working on right now are going to be also a differentiator. Great. That makes sense. And quite frankly, it sounds like a natural evolution of your model versus a pivot. Right. So what the underlying ethos of what you've started, and obviously I've been following you and known you for some time, and this sounds very exciting. And once again, to your point, focusing on your core strengths and double tripling down on that, I think is the best way to evolve your model. Now, we've been talking a lot about your journey and My Money, My Future, how it really leverages fintech to build generational wealth. We haven't really talked too much about building generational wealth. (laughs) We have a very well-credentialed financial expert wealth builder on the call. So I have to ask you some questions around fundamental building blocks around building generational wealth. So let's start there. What are some fundamental building blocks of wealth creation? Absolutely. I love this question. So I think one of the things that happens in personal finance or wealth management, whatever you want to call it, it all comes down to your money, your relationship with money, is that people try to make it more complex than it is. It is complex because there's a lot of moving pieces. But at the end of the day, your net worth is essentially sort of it's your visual picture of where you are in terms of your financial health. And do you have money left over to pass on? This is where the intergenerational part means, right? Do you have wealth at the end of your life to leave to your children, your family, your community? And as Latinos, we know that is super important because when that wealth is delivered down to your children or to your family, it means that their starting place is with more assets, right? And so the net worth calculation is very simple. It's your assets. This is anything that's worth money, your house, your car, cash, your investments, all of those are in the assets minus your obligations, which is basically what we call generally debt, right? Anything you owe. And at the end of the day, 
being wealthy or being coming rich or being even financially healthy is having a positive number, right? We want your yeah. assets to be larger than your obligations or at least moving in that direction. So at the end of the day, it's all of the other things that we focus on are adding to one side or another. And so then when we get down to sort of the, okay, well, what about a budget? Well, the budget helps you spend less. That's what a budget is for. So that you're not creating more obligations, right? You're not spending more than you have. So that's step one, understanding your budget, right? Mm-hmm. So you people need to get into the habit of it. I mean, and it's not complicated. I hate when we complicate even budgeting. You can't spend more than you make, right? Yeah. I mean, it's that simple. <laughs> Nowadays, budgeting tools, there's so many of them, right? I mean, everything can track your budget. But at the end of the day, we use a nice formula. It's really simple. It's three buckets. No more than 50% of your take-home salary should be going towards paying your major expenses or what we call your fixed costs, housing, electricity, food. 20% of your take-home income should be going into investing in savings, right? So making money off of your money. And then 30% is where you're allowed to kind of spend on whatever it is. And I just say prioritize. The other thing that's important in that 30%, when you're spending, I have a little rule. If I'm spending over like three, $400, I ask myself, is this an asset? So, you know, buy assets, not things. You can tweak that. Buy assets, not things. Because as you buy things that are adding to your asset ledger, right? Because if you're going to buy, a watch, for example, and you know, you're going to spend $500. Well, you might as well spend a little bit more and get one that has a higher resale value. That's why they say when you buy a car, for example, you shouldn't be buying a car in cash because a car loses value. It's a depreciating asset. And that cash could be used to be invested to create more money. Usually investment accounts go up. So Mm -hmm. I think the way that we want to think about all of our financial decisions are about, is this an asset or will it become an asset like a home? At first is an obligation because you take a mortgage, right? And so you owe a lot, but as it goes up in value and as you pay more of it off, it moves to the other side and it becomes an asset. Okay. Yeah. Within that context, you have this layer that we call kind of estate planning. That's like about making sure you don't lose the value of the assets that you have. So as you start to think about, okay, how do we make sure that we have enough at the end of my lifetime? And by the way, to anyone that's listening, you should be thinking about that as early as your like late twenties. Okay. Really? This is, wow. Oh yeah. Sean, I know you just had a child. And so you're thinking about this stuff already. You should have a life insurance plan. Your wife should have a life insurance. You should have a 529 plan, right? So all of those things that are about the protection of the wealth and the intergenerational piece, which is what am I going to leave after I'm gone? Or, or if something even just happens to me, that's why insurance is so important. It ensures that an emergency doesn't become a crisis. Right. Because a crisis is when I'm in New York, for example, there's a lot of apartments that, you know, have fires in New York. And unfortunately, a lot of people, especially if you're working class, you don't have insurance on your apartment. People don't realize that if if something happens, they're not going to pay for anything. Everything that is lost is gone. And so if you don't have 
enough money to replace everything in your home, in your apartment, even if you're not a homeowner, you should have rental insurance. InsureTech has made that very affordable. Not to plug lemonade, but they do have a good product. It's 20 bucks. So these are the kinds of things that we do to protect the assets. So the other thing that's really important, something you should be doing as soon as you start working is investing. Because people think about retirement as an age, and it's not. There's lots of times when we think about retirement as just sort of a place when you're not really working (laughs) day to day. But if you're using the right type of accounts, you're planning for retirement as early as possible. Because the idea is that you want your money to be working for you. Okay. And the great thing about compound interest is that it's on your side in terms of investing. So if you're starting with $50 when you're 18 and you put that into a Roth IRA and every month, if you got money to go out or to go eat or to go spend on something like your nails or your hair, I'm always telling girls, I was like, you got to put 50 in your Roth IRA, right? And you start building that when you're 18. By the time that you're even in your early 30s, you're going to have a nice little egg. And at that point, you decide, okay, well, what do I want to do with this, right? You should have multiple types of retirement and or what I call just investing accounts. You should have your 401k linked to your work and make sure you take the match because that's going to grow. You should have your Roth IRA because it's a nice way to, to create a what I call a super emergency fund that you can also take from later on, right? Because the Roth is, is nice that way. It's, it's after tax money. You should also have a brokerage account, right? And so when people say, oh, I want to start investing, what they usually mean is that they want to start investing in a brokerage account because they are investing if they have a 401k. If they have a house, they're already an investor. But I think this notion of like investing is like an active day trader, right? And I think that's something that's a little dangerous because you should have a brokerage account And you should think of it as your, I call it your FU fund. It's your, I want to buy a boat in my 50s fund, whatever it may be. That's going to be additional money that is growing at a little bit faster rate than might be in your 401k. So that was a lot. (laughs) I'll stop there. But these are just some of the things that we talk about when we're talking about building wealth, that it's, it's time, right? It's time over money. So that's yep. the key. It's as simple as net worth, which is assets minus obligations. So you're doing, you're either on one side of that ledger or the other at all times with your money, right? You're either buying an asset or you're creating obligations if you're like, for example, spending on your credit card. Mm-hmm. And then I think the third thing to really be thinking about is sort of, you know, what kind of lifestyle you want. Because I think that often we think about finance as a one size fits all. And it's not. And I think that's kind of the problem is that there are different kinds of people and we want different kinds of things with our money. A good financial quote unquote plan is helping you get to what you want with the money that you're making, right? Because you might be someone that appreciates like having security. You're like, I want a house. I want a family. That might not be everyone's plan. It might be, I want to go live in, I don't know, in across the world. I want to travel for a year that, you know, having a house might not be what you want to invest in, but you got to invest your money in something. Maybe it's in the market versus property. So the point is, like you were saying earlier, there's many ways to create intergenerational wealth. 
what we're going to try to help you do is make the best decisions along the way so that you get there. I love that. I love that. Where is the best place to start? In terms of what? Like the products or the things that you should be doing? Yeah, the things you should be doing. I heard you. I'm inspired. I'm in my mid-20s. Where should I go? What should I do? Where should yeah. I click into? Yeah. Well, first, follow us on, on Instagram. We do a lot there. I try to keep people updated on things that are important to them. We have a financial boot camp, which is an investing boot camp. And I would say to sign up for that, it's we've made it super affordable. And this is not just sort of a quick Instagram bootcamp. This is a deep eight-week course that you can take online on the fundamentals of investing. Because what we've seen was that a lot of people were getting excited about GameStop and crypto, and they're doing all of this stuff, but they don't actually know the fundamentals. So that's going to be a good start for you. But in terms of like what I would say, if I was in in your 20s, the things that I would have told myself in my 20s, Take care of your credit, but don't be afraid of credit, right? Be afraid of Mm -hmm. high interest credit cards, but you have to learn how to leverage debt. So don't be afraid of credit, but take care of your credit card. Step one, understand your credit, right? Two is start investing like ASAP, whether it's in a 401k, if you have it at work or a Roth IRA, which anyone can open up pretty easily nowadays and or a brokerage account which like I said, I don't know any rich white man that doesn't have all three. Okay. So (laughs) the brokerage accounts are not sort of optional. I mean, they really are part of usually your financial plan. And then three, especially if you have children, especially if you have parents and or family members that you are thinking of taking care of or care about financially, get life insurance and start talking to family members about their finances. This is a big one, especially for Latino families. I can't tell you how many people are not talking to their parents and siblings about the plan. How are we going to take care of mom and dad, right? What does that mean? Whose Mm. house are they going to live at? Do they have their own property? Whose name is that property in? Do we have a will? Is there a trust? especially right now after COVID, when we had people pass away in our communities, I have now been dealing with three different cases because I still do a little bit of law on the side, especially for family and friends, where there wasn't correct titling on homes. There wasn't a will. And now they're going to be in probate and they're going to pay a ton of money. And they're probably going to lose the only asset they had, which is a house. Wow. Okay. Like This is happening across the country. And people aren't talking about it because it is complex when you get into a state law. But there are things that you can do without even having to be like, oh my God, I, you know, I don't know about trust. I don't, well, you can start with at least a will and you can start with thinking about who has access, who needs access, even something as simple as changing the beneficiaries on your forms or making sure that they're up to date. If you have a 401k or you have life insurance or even a brokerage account, You need to identify a beneficiary. Those are contracts. So it doesn't matter that you're married. Those contracts are going to define where that money goes. Yep, that makes sense. And I wish we had more time so we can break this down. But that said, how can people follow you so that they can stay abreast? I mean, you mentioned the Instagram account. I'm on Twitter. I'm pretty active, Dinero underscore Diva. Anybody that's already signed up to my money will kind of come over, be sort of lifted over to Wealthfield. We're looking to publicly launch in Q1. So just kind of 
hold on. And this is all the kind of information that's going to be part of the platform, right? This is the key stuff. It's not complex. Like you're going to be able to get it, but you do need a little bit of a Sherpa to be like, well, let's see which thing is best for you right now. Because I don't know until I talk to you, right? But how do I talk to everybody? And we do through AI and data and machine learning, we're able to do that. And final closing question, and it's a broad one, so bear with me, but answer any way you see fit. What does fundamental fairness mean to you? Self-determination. I think fundamental fairness is about your ability to have agency and to activate on that agency in a way that you're not going to be discriminated against. The fundamental fairness is about we each have agency and it's going to be respected in the same way. I love that. And with that said, thank you so much, Ramona, for being on this podcast. It truly is a pleasure and honor. Such a big fan of what you're doing and can't wait to see where WealthBuild goes. So thanks again for being on this podcast. Thank you so much, Sean. Please be sure to like and subscribe to Fundamental Fairness anywhere podcasts are available. We'd like to thank Bethany Sands for sound and editing, our creative team, Tanya Chaidez and Eric Colleen, assistant producer, Melanie Diaz, and our senior producer, Elianette Romero.